Hear God's word from Jude verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I want you to think of a strap pulled tight between two anchored points. For some of you, you think of a slack line. For some of you, you think of a hammock. For some of you, you may think of a rope tied tight between two posts. Where the strap hangs between these two points is entirely determined upon where those anchored points are. That's a vague, conceptual painting of what Jude is trying to do for us here. He's telling us that we live on this strap between two anchored points on one end. One end is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the truth of Jesus Christ, what he has done on the other end is what we see in our passage today, the destination of the righteous. And where we come from, what our hope is based in, in Jesus Christ, and where we're going determines how we live in between the two, determines where that strap falls, where that rope lies as it is anchored between these two things. Jude is telling us we have to keep looking to where we're headed to understand how to be where we are today. So Jude turns our attention to the end of time, to ultimate things. As a conclusion to his letter, what Jude is showing to us is that all that he said so far in this book depends on this, the glory of our God. It depends on the authority of our gracious Savior. Nothing that is done is done apart from God. And so Jude ends with a triumphant declaration of God's glory as the foundation of everything he's written, as the foundation of hope for his readers. And Jude drives his point home by reiterating it in a powerful doxology. God is mighty and he will keep us. So in typical Jude fashion, we have three points today. We have, first of all, God keeps us. Second, God stands us. And third, God's glory. God keeps us, God stands us, and God's glory. Let's look here at God keeps us. We see this in verse 24. Jude starts his famous doxology with this phrase, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's important to remember that so far, Jude has already warned his readers twice about the importance of of keeping. Just a few verses earlier in verse 21, he tells them to keep themselves in the love of God. And all the way back at the very beginning, in the very first verse, he calls his beloved those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Reminder, implicit reminders that our enemy wants us to stumble and fall. The enemy wants these false teachers to be victorious over the faithful ones in the church. Here is a quote from a theologian who is quoting 
a church father. Church father says this. He imagined the flesh saying, ego deficium, meaning I will surely fail and miscarry. I will surely fail and miscarry. And the world saying, ego decipium, I will deceive and entice them. And Satan saying, ego eripium, I will snatch them and carry them away. That's what the world wants. It comes from within and it comes from the world around us and it comes from Satan himself. But then there's this final one. Imagine God saying, ego custodium, I will keep them. I will never fail them nor forsake them. That is where our safety and security lie. Jesus will keep his children safe from falling. And this is not a reference to today necessarily. Jude is pointing us forward to that end time. And he's telling you on that day, when you stand before the presence of God in his glory, those who are kept in Christ will not stumble. We, of course, continue to sin today. And we will not maintain a stumble-free life. Not that we give up and surrender and say, oh, well, that is exactly what Jude is combating in his letter. Jude is shifting the focus to ultimate eternal things. And that is a deep comfort because despite the enemy's best efforts to come in and to snatch us away and to make us fall, he will not ultimately prevail in causing those who belong to Jesus to stumble. Paul speaks with a similar confidence in Romans 8. He says, and those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is written with a confidence that is true of all those who are in Jesus. That glory is guaranteed. How then do we become a part of this so-called unbreakable chain of salvation that ends in glory where we don't stumble? First Peter tells us it's by faith. He says, First Peter 1.5, By God's power we are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're being guarded and we receive that, that protection of our Savior by faith. Now, Jude gives a little, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler. If you're curious how the end, how the ending goes, you just found out. This would be a bad movie review, but this is a great comfort to us. And it has to change our outlook on today. When you're watching a TV show and you know the protagonist and you know you're only in season two and it looks like the protagonist is going to die in season two, but you know there's already season eight out, you know the protagonist isn't going to die. So you can watch the show differently. For you and for me, our outlook on today changes. We don't have to face, we will not face ultimate death. So knowing that truth changes how we face life today changes how we encounter our own sins. It changes how we encounter those around us and it changes what's important to us. There is, as I mentioned a moment ago, a, an erroneous response to say, oh, well, if God's gonna carry me home, let me do what I wanna do today. That's the antinomian response. And if, it, if, it, if this truth of knowing what's coming at the end leads you to live however you want to, then shame on you. Jude has condemned that very lie, saying that you have perverted the grace of God. 
and turned it into sensuality. Instead, knowing what's coming ought to lead us to find the lies and the ungodly living of sinful man to be repulsive, not to be alluring. And it ought to drive us as members of Christ's body to build one another up and to pray for one another in the Holy Spirit and to wait with patience for that day that Jesus' mercy will be shown to us on the judgment day. He will keep us for that day. We will not fall on that day. Now, that concept is developed farther as we look at Jude's second point, which is that God stands us. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To present you is literally to stand you. That is a vivid picture for me of Christ taking those who are his and standing them in the throne room of God. God is acting for his people by making us to stand. Now, to stand in judgment carries two meanings. First of all, if you're standing before God, the standing alone implies that you are being judged. The scene at the end that John paints for us in Revelation 20 is this. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. To stand before a, a judge is to come under judgment. But to stand up, to be able to withstand the judgment is another meaning. You and I cannot, if we stand in judgment before our God, continue to stand on our own legs, on our own strength. We will fall under the weight of our own guilt. Our sin will bear us down and the judgment will crush us justly. Psalm 1 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And already the question of judgment has been on the mind of Jude and his readers because you'll recall he has talked about judgment time after time after time throughout his book. These false teachers and what they deserve has been told in repeated fashion. You'll remember the Israelites were destroyed for not believing. The angels were kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You'll remember Sodom and Gomorrah underwent a punishment of eternal fire. And then move down to verse 13. We see also the false teachers have their own punishment. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And Jude tells us in verse 16 who these are. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. And if that's not clear enough, we'll just use what Paul famously said in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then who can stand under judgment? Jude 
Jude says that God is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Blameless. The blameless ones are the only ones who can stand under the judgment because they have nothing counted against them. You'll remember in the Old Testament, the requirement for sacrifices. First of all, blood needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And second of all, it had to be the blood of a blameless sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus, repeatedly in the opening chapters is the requirement that a sacrifice be given literally without blemish, spotless, blameless. That's because something that is sinful cannot pay for the sins of something that is sinful. We need something that is perfect to pay the sacrifice. And those Old Testament sacrifices were simply shadows anticipating the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 how we were saved by Christ's sacrifice. And he says this, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ is the blameless, spotless sacrifice that washes us clean. And when we are washed by his blood, we are blameless. And so when we stand on that last day in the presence of God and we are covered in the perfect blood of Jesus, he sees us and calls us blameless like our Savior. And therefore, we will not stumble. Therefore, we can stand in the judgment because we are upheld by Christ. And it's not just for that last day. It's for today as well. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what Christ has done for you and for me, for his people as we come together and as we are washed with water through the word, and as we partake of him together, he is presenting us as a radiant church, bringing us to be holy and blameless in his presence, presented to him on that great wedding feast on that last day. And it's not because we become perfect, but because he covers us in his perfection. So when we stand on that judgment, washed in Christ's blood, we will not be crushed. Because to be in the presence of his glory, as Jude says, to him who is able to present you, to stand you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, it's incomprehensible that sinful man can be in the presence of his glory. You'll remember Moses wanted to see God's glory and God said, you can't. But we, believers, will be able to look at our God without a veil between, upheld by the magnificent strength of our high priest, Jesus. Now contrast that with what Jude has said so far about the false teachers and the ungodly. Punishment, eternal fire. But believers, those who are in Christ, will stand with great joy. Can you imagine seeing all your guilt and all your sins again 
and then seeing them all pardoned. The joy, the relief that that is. You were declared blameless, righteous, and you're welcomed because of what Jesus did. Thomas Manton said, when others howl on that judgment day, when others howl, you will triumph. When other people are dejected and ask the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, you will lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's because our God stands us in the righteousness of Christ in his presence on that last day. Jude continues, he says, to him who is able to keep you, to him who is able to stand you blameless, to the only God, our Savior, be glory. He moves now into the doxology. He doesn't take any of what God has done and says, look at how good I am now. He says, let's give praise where it is due to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, did you notice he says, God, our Savior? Normally, we think of Jesus being described as our Savior. It's rare for God to be described as Savior. But we, of course, understand that Jesus is God and that there is no tension in calling God our Savior because our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit always work together to save us. And without the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, not one of us would be saved. God is our Savior through Jesus Christ, what he has done and as our mediator. And this is contrasted to the false teachers who had their dreams that they used to justify their own teachings. They were giving self-approval, denying the faith that had been delivered by God's own messengers through the prophets and the apostles, and they had become their own source of legitimacy and spiritual insight. But Jude reminds us it's to God alone, the only God, our Savior, To him be glory. We are in the Father by being in Christ. If we have seen Christ, we have seen the Father, and we have access to the throne of grace by Jesus Christ our Lord. And he moves right in to a rich list, the famous Jude doxology. To God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. A doxology is a word of praise. It's a word of glory. You'll notice Jude enters into a doxology right after he has charged these Christians in a difficult situation to stand firm. He's telling them, praise when it is hard. Praise our God when you are tasked with caring for those who have fallen prey to the false teaching. In the face of difficulty and trial and temptation, when you see brothers and sisters who are falling, pray. Amidst the call to have mercy on them and to save them, give praise. Remember that strap pulled tight between the two anchors. The glory of God to which we are headed, we get to go be in his presence and be stood up blameless in his presence, that should drive us to praise our glorious God at any point along the path. Now, when Jude declares glory to God by saying, 
to God be glory. He's not objectively increasing the amount of glory that our God possesses. Another way that we can say this is to God, our glory and majesty and dominion and authority. These belong to our God and we are acknowledging them and submitting ourselves to them. And so then we become the worshipers rather than the worshiped. Jude states what is true about our God, and its very statement increases our awareness of God's worth and his deservedness. And its very statement keeps us from the traps of the false teachers like pride and self-dependence and selfish pursuits and rejecting authority and more. And when we declare these kinds of words of praise, that's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. And that's how we keep ourselves from the eternal fire of punishment because our God, who we praise, is the one who keeps us. You'll remember a lot of the examples that Jude gave in his book were people who had authority issues. People who rejected the boundaries, that, the boundaries and the bounds that God had given them, the positions that he had instituted. The Israelites, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Korah, and Balaam. They all rejected God's law. They rejected his proper worship. They rejected their position in life where God had put them, and therefore they, were reject- they had rejected God's authority. But Jude then, in contrast, gives a joyful word of praise, reiterating and praising and exalting the authority of our God as the only authority. And he does it with four words. He says, to God be glory. First is glory. This word carries the weight of the glorious presence of God in his brightness. It's the human goal to exalt God in his glory, in his presence, for us to be there in his brightness. But we, however, cannot approach this glory of God due to our filth. Using this word reminds us of Moses asking to see God's glory, but being unable without being consumed by that glory. And it sounds like the presence of God in the temple into which no man can go without the purification provided by God's ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. That purity is necessary to be near this glory. But in the New Testament, Jesus is described with this same glory that was possessed, that is possessed by the Father Because he and the Father are one. And for all those who are in Christ, they are carried into the very glory of God and can stand without being consumed as they are upheld by Jesus and his merits. To God be glory. And to God be majesty. This word majesty is used of kings and queens. It implies God's unconquerable glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords, which is picked up in the next word, dominion. But Hebrews 1, 1 and 3 describes God as the majesty on high, whose glory and nature are visible only by his Son, who is the radiance and the exact imprint of this majesty. This majesty who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is majestic authority. To God be majesty. And to God be dominion. This word literally means power, strength, or rule. It's the word used in different forms of government. You've heard of democracy, theocracy, bureaucracy. That's the word. Dominion, rule, strength. In God's dominion, in God's power, 
We declare that he has the ability to do and to act and to direct all things according to his good pleasure as he desires at all times. He does not bow to our wills as he rules. And while that is a scary thing to the ears of sinful humans, it is a beautiful thing to the ears of those who are found in the one true good propitiation in Jesus Christ. To God be dominion. And to God be authority. This means Christ's sovereignty. This refers to God's power to decide. It is defined as the absolute possibility of action that is proper to God alone as the source of all power and legality. To go against God's glory and majesty, dominion and authority is to be in the bad company of the Israelites, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Korah, Balaam, and the false teachers who ignore God's law. Let us not reject this authority the way the false teachers did. And to God be this glory and majesty and dominion and authority, not just one day, not just in the past, not just at times, but Jude says, before all time and now and forever. This is an all-encompassing eternal glory and authority that belong to God. It always has. It always will. And sometimes the hardest one for us to understand is that it does. He does have this authority and it does belong to him. Just as God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit were present before the foundation of the world from eternity past, He is God now and He will be forevermore. He does not change. His glory does not fade. He will not expire or become outdated. This world does not like the concept that if they don't consent, then it's not true. They say, I have to agree to it in order for it to be enacted. God is true no matter if the knee bows today or if the knee bows on that last day. God reigns. He always has and he always will. And Jude ends with the famous word, amen. You've heard it. We say it a lot. This is a word of ratification. Or it's, it's an affirmative statement. It's a way of saying, indeed, yes, I agree. Or that is true. Jude's statements in his doxology are true on their own, but to end with an amen is like saying, period, end of story. It's an emphatic validation of all that has come before. Indeed, there is nothing truer, is there, than the glory of God and the majesty of our God. There's nothing truer than that gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith that was once for all given to the saints. Do we say amen with Jude? That's our charge as we leave here. I ask us, do we say amen with our words and with our hearts? Amen to this doxology. Do we heartily desire the glorious reign of God? Do we cry out, amen, our God, our Savior, our Lord Jesus? Yours is the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority from all time past and now and forever. 
Is that our theme? Is that our anthem? Is that what we sing all the time? Do we say that all this authority and this, and this power are God's? Do we say, let's give glory and praise where it is due? Do we live consistent with the truth that God reigns and he is sovereign and he is in control, even over the little things, even over the things that we don't want to surrender? Do we give praise? Do we say amen? It is true. Your reign is, is absolutely affirmative in my life. Or do we claim authority and power as ours? I'm in control of my life. I get to decide what I do. Do we crave glory and praise from created things or people? Do we want others to look at us and say, oh, wow, you are so amazing. Do we live in worry or fear? Or do we live under self-imposed weights of responsibility with the savior complex? And so then what we do is we're practically denying that God is in control. So how do we become these worshipers whose lives say amen at every turn? Especially in light of the fact that for the majority of the hours in a week, we are being molded by this world. This world that is trying to tell us it's all about us so that they might then take from us. This world that is trying to distract you from the truth of God's glory so that you might be dragged down into the pit of condemnation. It's an easy path. It takes no resistance to follow that path. How then do we push back? We must be reminded. We must be reminded of this truth, this faith of Je- uh, this this faith that has been passed down, this truth of Jesus Christ. And we must practice giving glory to God, even as we gather here in this place every week. What we are doing is remolding ourselves. God is remolding His people back into worshipers. Because we're putting aside our desires and we are singing that he is worthy and we are praying to him at a time when he may be found and we exalt what he has done. Here as we come together, we get to watch what has been called here the workplace of recreating grace. God is reworking grace in our hearts every time that we gather Let the gospel of Jesus be your proclamation and your refrain. Let Jesus be the one that you adore and praise and ascribe glory and majesty and dominion and authority to. And let's say amen, not just on Sundays, but with the rest of our week. Say amen as a compliment to the faith that you proclaim in the way that you live. Give God glory when things are going well. Refuse to take the praise. Refuse to take the credit for your accomplishments because you know that all your skills and all your situations and all your good things come from God. The only reason you have hope in this situation is because of him, so give him praise. Give God praise when things don't go well and acknowledge his reign by saying, thank you, Lord, when things are hard. Trusting him to keep you to the end because you have hope when things are hard because of God's authority. Let us, brothers and sisters, be like John the Baptist. Let our lives say on repeat, he must increase, I must decrease. To the glory of our God, to him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority from this time and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God.
To you be glory and authority and dominion and majesty. We bow to you. We acknowledge your control. We admit that in salvation, you are entirely the one who acts on our behalf. And so we receive it with gladness. And as we receive it in faith, we sing praise to our God. And we bow our lives in praise to you. There we find purpose. There we find hope. There we are reminded that we are anchored in what Christ has done and in where you are taking us. We thank you for these words from Jude that are constant reminders of the praise that is due to you, our God. Would we be worshipers this morning and every day? To the glory of Jesus, in his name we pray by the Spirit. Amen.